good evening and welcome here to tonight's 5 by 15 and it's great to have so many of you joining us for what's going to be a wonderful session. So our first guest, as I said, is Safraz Manzor. Safraz is an extraordinary journalist. He's a documentary maker, he's a broadcaster, he's a screenwriter, and he's of Pakistani origin, something he's always talked about in his books and in his writing. But right now, he's come full circle back to talking about what it means to be a Muslim in Britain today in his new book called They, which is a tremendous expose of his life and all the things it means. That doesn't take me to tell you that this is an extraordinarily topical moment, given what's happened in the last few days. And I know that Saf is not going to duck from that particular issue and indeed will probably head us right into the death of Sir David Amos. Um, Safraz, welcome here to 5 by 15. Thanks so much for being with us and thank you so much for kicking off this eclectic and extraordinary evening ahead. So over to you. Thank you. Um... Uh, thanks, Rosie, and uh, hi, good evening to everybody who's uh, who's watching. So I want to take you back to the summer of 2017. It's, uh, it's June the 18th, which is a Sunday, and uh, I spent the day at a street party near where I live in North London. The road was closed so that the local kids could be playing there whilst the grown-ups had food that was shared amongst the neighbours. And the whole idea behind the street party was to meet people that you didn't already know. And the sun was shining, the children were playing, the adults were chatting, and everything seemed well in the world. It was only later that night, after I'd put Layla and Ezra to bed, that I first heard the whirring of helicopters above my home. And by the time I woke up, Finsbury Park, which is 10 minutes from where I live, had turned from a neighbourhood to a hashtag, because a guy, later named as Darren Osborne, had attacked the mosque. He'd driven a van into worshippers leaving Ramadan prayers, and he'd have apparently been overheard saying that he wanted to kill all Muslims. Now, I am a Muslim. I'm a British Pakistani Muslim. So the fact that this attack happened so close to where I live was bound to leave me shaken. But it actually did a lot more than that, because the Finsbury Park attack took place in June 2017 and the previous 12 months had been incredibly depressing for anyone who wanted to believe that Britain was a decent and tolerant nation where Muslims and non-Muslims could live together. Remember what happened the previous 12 months. You'd had terror attacks in Manchester and London from Muslim extremists. You'd had the Labour MP Joe Cox who had been vocal in speaking out on behalf of refugees who'd been murdered by a far-right extremist. And then you'd had all the revelations about Pakistani child sex grooming gangs in places like Rotherham and Rochdale. And these stories were being exploited by groups like the EDL who started suggesting that child sex exploitation was somehow a Muslim issue. Oh, and Britain had also voted for Brexit. And yes, that was meant to be about Europe, but I couldn't forget the guy I saw on Channel 4 News a couple of days after the vote, and he was in Barnsley. And I remember him telling the reporter, it's all about immigration. It's not about trade or Europe. It's all about immigration. It's to stop the Muslims from coming into this country. Simple as that. Now, I am by nature an optimist. I generally believe that people in real life are not as awful as they are on social media. And I like to believe that Britain is fundamentally a tolerant nation. But what if I'm wrong? 
what if the tensions between Muslims and non-Muslims continue to worsen? Where would that leave me? And where would that leave my kids who were growing up with a British Pakistani dad and a white Scottish Christian mother? I started to worry that Layla and Ezra would grow up feeling more comfortable with their mum's heritage than their dad's. And it was that fear that directly inspired me to want to write this book because I wanted to start to confront every common stereotype about Muslims. So I've got a question for everybody watching. What do you think when you hear the word British Muslim? Do you think back to 7-7 and Manchester Arena and London Bridge and think terrorism? Or do you think about Rochdale and Rotherham and Telford and think child sex gangs? Do you start thinking about women in niqabs who you imagine are subjugated? Do you worry that British Muslims hold opinions that are out of step with the mainstream or do you worry that they don't accept British values and do you worry and wonder why they want to live in segregated communities? If any of this is close to describing you or anybody you know, that's what I was thinking of when I started to work on this book. Now, when I was growing up in a working class Pakistani family in Luton during the 80s, I had parents who told me that they were different to us. They had different values. They had a different culture. They were a threat to our way of life and they would never accept us. And they were white people. But in recent years, I've heard the same accusations repeated. They are different. They have a different culture. They are a threat to our way of life and they will never accept us. But nowadays it's far right groups as well as hate preachers in the national press and on social media who are making that accusation. And this time, they are Muslims. And that's why I call the book They. And in each chapter, I focus on a different accusation that's leveled at Muslims. They don't want to live among us. They only want to marry their own. They don't treat men and women as equals. They follow a violent religion. They hate Jews. They believe homosexuality is a sin. They don't love our country. You get the picture. And in each chapter, I ask, why do people think this? Is any of this true? And then I look for stories that both confirm and challenge that perception. Now, I started working on this book not long after having written the screenplay for Blinded by the Light, which was the film adaptation of my book, Greetings from Berry Park. And the story of Blinded by the Light is set in 1987 in Luton, and it's about a working class Pakistani kid, basically me, whose life is transformed by the music of Bruce Springsteen. And one of the fascinating things about the response that I've had to that film ever since it came out is there is hardly a week that goes by that somebody doesn't contact me on social media to say it's really connected with them. But these people aren't Muslim. They're not from Luton. Some of them, most of them, weren't even born in 1987. But they're connecting because there is something about the emotional connection to the story that they find really powerful. And I really found that that was really interesting because it reminded me of the power of storytelling to build a bridge of empathy. So rather than writing a book that was a manifesto or a book that tells you what to think, I wanted to write a book which was going to be a mix of history, reportage and memoir, and it would tell a story. It would be a mix of my story and then the bigger story. And the bigger story would start in the 1960s with a group of men who come over from the subcontinent. And I tell their story in the opening chapter. And then in later chapters, these men get married and then they have children. And the reason I chose the particular families that I did is that during the story of their own experiences, they would run 
into some of the issues that I'm talking about in the book. So, for example, one of the men who comes over in 1962 has a son who ends up becoming gay. I have another story about a, a man who has a daughter who falls in love with a Jewish man. And another man ends up raising a son who ends up prosecuting the Pakistani child sex gang members. And what was so fascinating researching and talking to these people is that they tell you little stories which I don't think any fiction writer could come up with. I'll give you an example. I was talking to a woman who, when she was 16, she was married and she came over to Britain. And she's living in a house with seven other guys and all the guys go off to work and she's on her own and she's just watching TV all day, all on her own. And she told me that whenever she got changed, she turned the TV off because she thought in her world, she believed that the TV and the people on the TV could see her. The other thing I discovered about writing the book was so much of the story that I had been told and I suspect you had been told about British Muslims wasn't the whole story and was actually often totally wrong. So for example, I grew up being told that, I grew up being told by my parents that the worst thing I could do was have a relationship with somebody who wasn't a Muslim because this was this never done. But actually the history of mixed marriages goes as far back as the late 18th century in Britain. And there were stories of Indian men who had relationships with white women who would then be given nicknames like Lascar Sally, and Calcutta Louise. I'd also been told that Islam was totally opposed to homosexuality. It's always been told that, that the two things just don't go together. But actually, if you look at the history, Muslim poets and painters and scholars have frequently referred to homosexual love without any negative judgment. And during the course of working on the book, I came across a 19th century Ottoman book, which featured a painting depicting a youth being penetrated by an older man while two other men stood watching. And what was fascinating to learn was that those men wouldn't have actually considered themselves gay because the concept of being homosexual only appeared in Europe in the second half of the 19th century. I interviewed more than 100 people from, for the book, from teenage Pakistani lesbians to a 96-year-old man who's one of the last living British Muslim World War II veterans. He served in Italy under Field Marshal Montgomery and talking to him was so inspiring because it reminded me of the long history of Muslim service to this country, which is over, often overlooked. I had no idea, for example, that among the soldiers who fought at Dunkirk were 300 Muslims from present day Pakistan who had traveled 7000 miles to help the British army. And I think if more people, Muslims and non-Muslims, knew these stories, I think it would be easier to challenge the narrative of inevitable conflict. Now, there's a great quote from the American children's TV presenter, Fred Rogers, who I cite at the start of my book. And he said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. I found that quote incredibly reassuring. And that's what I've tried to do in the book is to amplify the story of the helpers. Because the truth is there is a lot of good out there if you seek it. For every bleak newspaper headline, there are loads of other stories of ordinary people doing good. Like the Muslim man I met in Bradford who persuaded his local mosque to donate money to help restore the, the, the city's synagogue. Or Naveed Yassid, who'd grown up in Yorkshire but ended up working as a surgeon in Manchester. And in May 2017, he got a phone call saying he needed to come to work because there'd been an incident at the Manchester Arena. So when the victims of that bombing 
came to hospital. It was Naveed who was the first to attend to them. And it struck me that everyone knows that a Muslim detonated the bomb at the Ariana Ariana Grande concert, but hardly anybody knows that it was also a Muslim who tended to the injured. So what do these individual stories add up to? For me, the first thing they tell us is the danger of conflating religion with culture. Islam, the religion, has been interpreted and practiced in wildly different ways across the world and across history. So many of the issues that I looked at in the book had much less to do with religion and more to do with class and geography and where the immigrants came from. And the reason why British Muslims seem so reluctant to mix, to take on the values of the mainstream, it eventually comes down to fear. The story of fear that their culture, traditions and heritage will be diluted. And the only way to counter that fear for me is interaction across the communities. We all need to leave our silos of certainty and get to know people who are different so that we can learn the ways in which we're the same. I wanted to write a book that was hopeful, but the truth is sometimes it's not easy to be hopeful. And in the aftermath of the murder of David Amos, it's easy to again feel hopeless. But the truth is working on this book has left me feeling more hopeful than I started because I've come to realize that progress is not just about politics and policies, but also people. It's fascinating to note how often in my book change comes about due to individual actions. The Muslim woman who defends a Jewish father on the London Underground, the Muslim man who helps his local Jewish community, the Muslim mother who accepts her son being gay, or the former EDL member who now works to tackle extremism after befriending a Muslim in his local mosque. These are all individual actions that prove to have far-reaching consequences. So ultimately, what did I learn from writing this book? I learned that hope lives and dies in the actions of individuals and the changes they make. And what that means is that all of us, me and you, have the chance to make a difference and to be a helper. Thank you. Thank you so much, Safras. That was wonderful. I really like the way you ended, that we all, we all have the chance to make individual differences. And I think that's so true and it gets so forgotten in the way that our politics work, where we all seem to seem like a herd. Um, Good luck with the book and thank you very, very much for coming here and sharing it with us today.